You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church Midtown. This is our Advent series, Wrapped in Flesh. Well, peace be with you. For those of you who are at home, uh, we hope that you are doing well, and uh, we hope that the Lord is, is keeping you. And for those of you who uh, don't know, my name is Jamal. I am one of the pastors here at uh, Sojourn, and I have the privilege of explaining and applying the text that we just read. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive right in. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for this day that you have made. Thank you for the breath that's in our bodies. Thank you for uh, allowing us to be able to be in this sanctuary and to sing songs about your son's coming and to reflect on him returning. Thank you for a church that has been so faithful to you um, amid turmoil and darkness. Uh, Thank you, Father. And I pray, Father God, that you would help us to put away, as James says, any rampant wickedness and receive now with meekness the implanted word. Capture our attentions. Help me, Father God, to preach Christ and him crucified for your name's sake and glory. Meet us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is the holiday season. It is time to get our hearts ready to celebrate Christmas. And that means a lot of things. And part of what that means is holiday movies. And a couple weeks ago with my family, I got to see a great holiday movie, Jingle Jangle. Have you all gotten to see that? Oh, yeah. Kiddos are like, yes. It was fantastic, great family movie, uh, funny, heart-touching, all the makings of a Christmas classic. Uh, But some people don't get into that type of Christian, uh, I'm sorry, Christmas music. They rather watch Hallmark Christmas movies, right? (laughs) Oh, mixed response. Some people are like, yeah, you know. Um, I'm always amazed by Hallmark. They do a fantastic job, a fantastic job of telling the same story over and over. Just swap out the people and put in new names, and it's a hit, right? I mean, it's the same story, just a different small town, different coffee shop that's going under. And uh, many of you all love it. I'll be honest, it is a, a bit uh, tricky. It got me a couple weeks ago. I tease my wife, she likes these Hallmark movies, and I'm sitting there watching it with her, and it wrote me in. It got me. Halfway through, uh, someone pauses it, and I'm like, why did you pause? I'm like, oh, no, it happened. How did this happen? I don't know how they do it, but they do it. Hats off to you, Hallmark Channel, amen? Uh, my favorite, favorite Christmas movie of all time, I know many of you are going to agree with me here. Let's put it up. It's Die Hard. Yes, Die Hard. Best Christmas movie ever, I'm telling you. Uh, but I like other Christmas shows, too. I don't know if they're Christmas shows, but year-round. Things like Law & Order. Mm-hmm. I can binge on that in December. Or SWAT. That's a new discovery for me. I know those aren't Christmas movies, but it worked for the intro, and it's going to help me to make a connection here, all right? 
while you're watching your holiday movies, I'm still going to be watching my detective shows. And everyone knows that each of these shows, whether Law and Order, Die Hard, SWAT, they all really depend on a reliable witness. A reliable witness. A reliable witness when it comes to the criminal justice system, when it comes to these shows, are the ones who need to be found, need to be protected, right? And they need to, need to be heard. And so all of these detective shows look for a reliable witness. And the same is true for our criminal justice uh, department. If someone is on trial, the thing that matters most is were there witnesses? Can someone else collaborate the story? In John's prologue, as John is teaching us about Jesus, and as we learned last week in week number one, we're going to see in today's text that John is going to now start giving us reliable witnesses to collaborate the thesis of his book. And we talked about the theses of his book is found in John chapter 20, verse 31. It's, he's writing his book so that people may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And throughout the Gospel of John, he is going to be essentially calling witnesses to the stand to testify about these truths. So one of the ways that John is going to collaborate his claim is by showing uh, what God the Father said in the Old Testament and how in Jesus those things are fulfilled. Another way is going to be through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit is going to point to Jesus. Transformed lives is going to be witnesses. In John chapter 4, we're going to see a woman at the well and her life is transformed as she is living a life of shame before she meets Jesus. She meets Jesus and she's transformed. John chapter 9, a blind man meets Jesus and he is healed from blindness, blindness that he had at birth. And he becomes a uh, he tells his testimony about how Jesus delivered him. Lazarus is going to be a valuable witness. He's a person who's going to be dead, who's going to be raised from the dead, and then is going to go and share his testimony to all. All throughout the Gospel of John, we're going to see those witnesses. In fact, in John chapter 8, Jesus is talking to a crowd of people, and he begins to preach, and he says, I am the light of the world. And after he preaches this short, amazing sermon, some of the religious leaders says, yes, that's what you say, but... We know that we need two or three other witnesses to collaborate that. And Jesus says, I don't need any other witness because I am. I'm God. And so here in the opening prologue of John, after John has just told us and taught us that the, about the word, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and all things were made by him and there was nothing that was made apart from him. After he gives this description about the Logos, the word, now he is going to call his first witness, and his first witness is John the Baptist. And so as we look at John the Baptist's reliable testimony about Jesus, here's what I want you to understand today. Today's text invites us to live by faith daily in order that the light of Christ would impact us and shine through us. Live by faith daily 
in order that the light of Christ would impact us, transform us, and then shine through us as a testimony of others. And a perfect illustration that John wants to show us, the, a person who lived this out is a man by the name of John the Baptist. In verse 6, we learn some things about John Baptist in 6 through uh, verse 8. Verse 6 says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, this is not the author of the book. Last week, we talked about uh, the apostle John uh, wrote this, more than likely uh, John, uh, the son of Zebedee. And last week, I told you that this was, uh, book is, uh, was written by John. It was actually written in A.D. 90 or sometimes in A.D. 90s, not in the A.D. 30s. I think I may have mistakenly said that last week. But the apostle John is now writing about a man by the name of John the Baptist. And the text says that John the Baptist was sent by God. Verse 7 tells us that John the Baptist was a, a witness, and he was to testify about the light of God. And then we see in verse 8 that John wants us to know that John the Baptist was not the light himself, but once again, he came to testify about the light. And what's interesting is, is that John is going to take a break from John the Baptist for several verses, but then he's going to come back to the ministry of John the Baptist in verses 19 through 42. And in essence, he's going to say, okay, this is how John the Baptist came to testify about Jesus. And he starts off in verse 19 by talking about some hot shots that's going to come out into the wilderness where John is preaching. And these people are from Jerusalem. Uh, the text tells us that they are uh, important people. They're priests, uh, they're Levites, and they're some Pharisees. And the reason they are there is because John is drawing a large crowd of people from all backgrounds into the wilderness to hear him preach. And he is preaching fire. He is bringing it. And people are being baptized and they are being converted. And in verse 20 through 21, we see that they ask him. They're like, wait a minute. Are you the Messiah? John's like, no, I'm not the Messiah. They said, are you Elijah? He's like, no, I'm not Elijah. And he's going to even play the humble card here. They're like, are you a prophet? He's like, nope, I'm not even a prophet. Playing a really humble, humble card. They say, who are you? We have to give an answer to those who sent us. Now, Jerusalem is the capital uh, of, 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 of God's uh, earthly kingdom, right? It's where the, the most religious are, the most uh, dedicated, the most celebrated religious teachers. And so they're wondering, who is this man that's teaching this message because he's a threat to us? And I love John's response. Listen to John's response. He says, I'm just a voice. I'm just a voice. I'm a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And then John says, just as Isaiah prophesied. And he goes on to preach a very clear message about Jesus to testify about the light. Verse 29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. Listen to this. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and it rested on him. So John came preaching Jesus. 
And he came preaching that I'm not the Messiah. I'm just a voice preparing the way of the Messiah. And this Messiah that you all are waiting on is the one who has come to take away the sins of the world. He is the one who has come so that you might be reconciled with God the Father. He is the one who is to come so that you might be forgiven of your sins. John is preaching Jesus. Now, why does John the Apostle focus on John the Baptist's ministry? I believe that a part of the reason, as I said, this book is all about making a case for Christ, not only as the Messiah, but as the Son of God. And we see in the book of Acts that John the Baptist, his ministry impacted thousands. In fact, the apostles will travel places to do ministry, and they will meet people who uh, seem to be following the way, but uh, not quite, as they didn't know Jesus all the way as the Messiah. They were following the way according to John's preaching, and the apostles will begin to then preach Jesus to them because John's ministry was impacted. And it's possible that the early church was making a big deal about John the Baptist in a way that may have been even possibly unhealthy. And John wants to put John the Baptist's ministry in perspective to say John was a great man, but John was pointing us to the greatest, who is Jesus. In fact, Jesus would say that John, that no other man was greater, was born of a woman greater than John the Baptist. Yes, he was a greater man, a great man. In fact, John the Baptist was the only human being other than Jesus who was filled with the spirit in utero. John the Baptist was a great man, but John the Baptist wasn't greater than Jesus. See, the text tells us that where John was created, Jesus was not created. Where John was sent from God, Jesus is God. Where John testified about the light, Jesus is the light. John is just a voice. Now, the question is, what does John testifying about the light mean? What does it mean that Jesus is the light? Later on, Jesus is going to stand up and he's going to preach, I am the light of the world. What does it mean that Jesus is the light? When John writes about Jesus being the light and when John the Baptist testified about Jesus being the light, in essence, he's sharing that Jesus is the genuine and ultimate self-disclosure of God to man. Jesus is the genuine and ultimate self-disclosure of God to man. The Bible teaches us that we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is marred by darkness because of sin. You go back to the book of Genesis, just a few chapters after Adam and Eve has sinned. One chapter later, we see the first murder by Genesis chapter 6 and Genesis chapter 9, Genesis chapter 11. You see pure darkness and evil, so much so that God relents creating mankind. And the world that we live in is dark because our hearts are deceptive and selfish And and naturally, we're born sinners. We're born mean, wanting what we want. And Jesus being the light, he is perfect righteousness. There's no darkness in us. And when he came and became flesh, he was the genuine and ultimate 
self-disclosure of God, and God is light. So everywhere Jesus was, there was light. That's why John writes, he came as a witness to testify about this light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The second thing we want to see in this text is the witness about Jesus. It demands a response. The witness about Jesus demands a response. In verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Now, Jesus is the true light who gives light to everyone. Now, it talks about giving light to everyone. It doesn't mean that Jesus is going to save everyone. Everyone will repent and put their trust in him. But rather what it, is, it means and what it's talking about is not a necessary internal transformation as much as an external uh, confronting. That when Jesus became man and dwelt among us, when he was the light of God, everywhere he went, he exposed darkness. Everywhere he went, it's like a light was turned on in a dark room and and darkness was exposed. Verse 10, he was in the world and the world was created through him. And this is possibly the saddest group of verses in all of scripture. Jesus, the one who created the world, was in the world, and the world was created through him, yet the world did not recognize him. And by world here, John is talking about the people of the world. The one who created all of these human beings is going to be rejected by them. So interesting that as we read the Gospel of John and other Gospels, everything recognizes Jesus except for mankind. Nature recognizes Jesus. Jesus speaks to the roaring winds and the tumultuous sea, and he says, peace be still. And like a well-trained dog, nature obeys his voice. Bread and fish recognize him. One day Jesus is in a crowd of over 5,000 people, men and women, And he feeds people with two fish and five loaves. And these elements obey Jesus and multiply themselves to feed the multitude. Demons recognize them. Jesus meets demons often and he calls them out and confronts them. And they come out of people knowing that Jesus is Lord of all. And Jesus said if he wanted it to, the rocks would recognize him. He said, I would make the rocks cry out for me. Everything recognizes its creator except mankind. Jesus takes it, uh, John takes it one step closer in verse 11, which is even sadder. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And here, John is most likely talking about um, his kinsmen, the Jewish people, many of whom would reject him. And not only did his own people, the Jewish people, reject him, but we read in the Synoptic Gospels that his own family would reject him while he was alive. And not only did his own family reject him, his 
his mother and his brothers and, and sisters at, at some points in his ministry as they walked away, concluding that he was uh, literally crazy. He had lost his mind because he was so committed to the father's way. His town, his city rejected him. The Bible says that Jesus could not do many miracles in Nazareth because people would often say, wait, 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 wait a minute. Isn't that little Jay? Isn't that little Jay Joseph's boy? Isn't he one of us? Jesus was often rejected. In Isaiah 53, Isaiah says that he was despised and rejected by man. A man of sorrow. Acquainted with grief. I'm so glad that we serve a God who knows what it's like to feel sorrow and grief. Who knows what it's like to be human. That even though he has created all things and all things work through him, he knows what it feels like to experience loss. In this Advent season, we need to recognize that while the holidays for many is a time of happiness, it also can be a a time of deep grief. Some of us are grieving the loss of parents, remembering what the holidays was like. Some of us is grieving maybe the parent that we never had, the father that never showed up. Some of us is, is, is grieving an a empty crib, an empty womb, broken friendships and relationships that we thought were healthy and good and people who would always be around but who are no longer around. Some of us is grieving the fact that we're not married or grieving the fact that our spouse barely acknowledges our existence. And we wonder, does anyone care? Does anyone know? And John 1 through 14 says, yes, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. As Eugene Peterson says, Jesus moved into our neighborhood. He knows what it's like to be surrounded by darkness. He knows what it's like to have the dark night of the soul. He he knows what it's like to feel brokenness as his own bones was broken. And God the Father did not look upon him as he bore our sins on the cross. He knows what it's like to be isolated embarrassed and he took all of that upon us though he was perfect and deserved none of it so that we could be fully known and adopted into God's family Advent is a time to celebrate the fact that the God of this universe while he is imminent preeminent he is intimate And he empathizes with us in our weakness. And what John does next is is absolutely amazing. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name. So John points out that those who receive and believe, they are adopted into the family of God. 
And this is the, really the, a picture or definition of faith. To have faith in Jesus means to believe in his name. And by name, it means in who he is, in his character, in everything that he has said about himself, in everything that the scriptures has said about him. To have faith in Jesus is to believe that he is God, eternally existent. Believe that he is the creator of all things. Believe that he came to earth, put on human flesh while not giving up his divinity. Believe that he died on a cross and he rose again with all power in his hand. And he is in heaven doing fine and well and coming back again. That's what it means. It means to believe in his name, but it also means to receive. And oftentimes we talk about believing, but in order to have faith in Jesus, you have to take a posture of reception. A posture of reception is a posture of humility. Some of us, we have a hard time receiving gifts. Somebody give us a gift, we're like, I got to pay you back. You're like, you don't have to, they don't have to pay you back. It was a gift. You're keeping score. You feel like you often have to uh, stay even with someone or, or, or keep up with them. Salvation says, no, you're not saved by your works or your good deeds. It is a gift from God. Receive it. Peter had a hard time receiving. Later on in John's gospel, the Bible says that after a, a day of walking and, and being out, Jesus and the disciples came into a, a house. And rather than let the servant of the house wash people's feet, he got a towel in the basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet. And Peter said, hold on, Lord, hold on, Jesus. Uh, 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 you're not about to wash my feet, are you? He says, yeah, I'm about to wash your feet. And Peter said, well, um, I'm not going to allow you to wash my feet. He says, well, Peter, if you don't allow me to wash your feet, you have no part in me. Because salvation is believing that we are dirty. And that the only way that we become clean is by placing our faith in Jesus and allowing his blood to wash us. And we have to be able to receive that. Three quick takeaways from this text. In fact, before we get there, let me, this last verse is really good. I don't want to leave that out. Verse 13, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but God. So in this text, we see an interesting dynamic. The first dynamic is human responsibility. In order to become a part of God's family, you must believe, you must place your faith and trust in Christ Jesus. You must receive this gift of salvation by grace through faith. But also, we must recognize that we are not saved by natural descent. We're not born into the family of God, right? I believe John is even getting at uh, uh, the Jewish Christians, Jew Jewish audience that is reminding them it's not because you were born Jew Jewish or in Judaism that you are saved. And you're not saved because you got it together, and brought yourself to God. You're saved by the will of God. It is by grace. Three quick takeaways. One is believe and receive. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, hear the testimony of Scripture that Jesus is the Son of God. He has come to take away the sins of the world. There is nothing that you have done Nothing uh, that you can uh, do uh, that can keep you from receiving Christ as Lord if you repent 
and turn and trust Jesus with your whole heart. You come to God as a child, as a baby, recognizing that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, and you receive him. You you welcome him as Lord into your life and in your heart. Believe and receive. And as a Christian today, every day we should be coming to Jesus with faith, saying, Lord, I believe and I receive you. Help me to believe and to receive. Protect me from doubt. Protect me from worldliness. Help me not to be overcome with sin. Let the light of Christ shine in me. Second, embrace being just a voice. Part of walking in the light of Christ and living in the light of Christ amid darkness as Christians is us embracing this call like John the Baptist to just be a voice. I love John the Baptist's ministry and sitting in his ministry and reading all week. He was a fascinating person. He was extremely gifted. He was extremely courageous. He wasn't perfect. He even had moments of doubt. And even when the crowds and the multitudes were coming, he didn't water down his words so that people would accept him and, and like him. He saw his role as not being the lead singer, but the background singer. You know, Lecrae uh, has a song called I Can Play the Background. I can play the background. Okay. Y'all don't know that song, do you? Because I can't away, so I'll lead, lead me, lead, lead me. Where's Johnny at? Amen. I can play the background, background, right? God has called us all to play the background. And, and many times we experience, even as Christians, darkness when we forget that we're just a voice. The world doesn't revolve around us. We are not king and queen of our life. We're not called to slay. We're called to point people to the one who does. We're called to live our life as a testimony of his grace and his goodness and his kindness and to testify about how we once were in darkness. But because of him, we have Now become a part of his kingdom and entered into his marvelous light. My encouragement to you, Christian, is get out of the middle of your life. Get out of being the center of your life and put Christ at the center and believe and receive what he has given you. Believe and receive what he has called you to. Believe and receive where he has placed you. And just be a voice. That's what the Apostle Paul said to the church of Corinth as they were going crazy over who was the best preacher at Corinth. Was it Apollos? Was it Paul? Was it Cephas? Paul said, listen, it's not about that. He says, I didn't come with brilliant speech or eloquent speech. I came preaching Christ and him crucified. I'm just a voice. Evangelicalism, Protestant Christianity is always looking for the next great person. Everybody's just a voice. 
We're all broken. We're all in darkness. If Christ doesn't come and give us light, you're just a voice. Be a voice. You don't have to be Superman or Superwoman to your neighbor. Just be you and be a voice. Say hello. Bake some cookies. Build a relationship. Let them know that that you see them, that you know uh, the pains of life and, and brokenness. Just be a voice and point them to the light. Don't go in looking at their darkness and, and, and harping on their sin, but tell them about the light of Jesus who offers reconciliation with God and forgiveness and joy and peace and presence. Somebody say, just be a voice. Just be a voice. Third, this text encourages us to live out of our sonship. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to become children of God. To all who believed in his name. This points to something that we call sonship. The fact that when we confess our faith in in Christ, we become children of God. We are now adopted into his family. We become sons because of the son. We become daughters because of the daughter. And yet, because we live in a dark world, and because we are sinners ourselves, and because we've been sinned against, and we are are, are sinners, we can begin to live as if we are orphans rather than sons and daughters. We can begin to live as if we're not a child of the king. Are you living today as an orphan or as a son? Orphans are always living in fear, afraid of what might happen because they're not placing their faith and trust in a a God who can do the impossible. Orphans are constantly overridden with anxiety. Orphans are approval sucks, constantly looking for approval and, and affirmation from God. And all of us as Christians, we can become, have this orphan spirit. Orphans have to manipulate to get their way because they don't trust God. Orphans pull other people down to make themselves feel better. Orphans believe that their identity is found in how much they make and what they do as a living and what their friendships look like. Orphans approach God the Father as if he's not a faithful God who gives bread to his children when they ask. Rather, they treat him as if he is constantly looking to give them a serpent. Children, stand before God knowing that he loves them, knowing that he gave his very best for them knowing that he's going to provide for them, that if he provides for the bird of the air or the lilies of the field, that he will clothe them, knowing that he is pleased with them because they are in Christ. Children, live with a a playfulness and, and a hope because they know that the best is yet to come. 
And they know that in Christ, they are indestructible. Nothing will separate him from their love, and they are never alone. John chapter 14, John writes that Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. In the rest of the chapter and up and through chapter 16, he uh, begins to introduce them to the, the Holy Spirit, the comforter, who he says, when I leave, will come and make his home within them. You are indwelled with the Holy Spirit, Christian. And because of this, you have nothing to fear because perfect love casts out fear. God has not given you the spirit of fear, but power, love, and self-control. You are not an orphan. You are in God's family. He lavishes his love over you. He sings over you. He looks at you and he doesn't see your brokenness, your sin, or your insecurity. He sees you as perfection through his son. And every day when you wake, he gives you new grace and new mercy. He is as pleased with you as he is with Jesus because your life is now hidden in his. And this empowers you to obedience. This empowers you to be a voice because you don't need to be accepted by your parents. You don't need to be accepted by your siblings. You don't need to be accepted by your coworkers because if the world is against you, as long as God is for you, you can have peace and a joy that surpasses all understanding. Stand up. Embrace your inheritance. Embrace your spiritual blessings and embrace the fact that you are no longer a slave to sin, but have been set free. Embrace the fact that you are a part of a big family. Embrace the fact that a cattle on a thousand hills belongs to the Lord and God is going to provide for you. Embrace the fact that the darkness sought to overcome Jesus, but didn't. And that same darkness won't overcome you. Depression will not overcome you. Addiction will not overcome you. Pain and trauma will not overcome you because you are in Christ. And because of that, though you may bend, you won't break. Though you may be down, you are not cast out. Though you may feel lonely, you are never alone because you have one who sympathizes and empathizes with you in your weakness. And it's when you are weak that he has been made strong. And every Sunday we celebrate this truth by taking together a meal called communion. This meal reminds us of the fact that Jesus is the bread of life. He is our substance and sustenance. On the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, he blessed it, and he broke it. He said, this is my body, broken. Listen to this, for you. You say, God, I'm so broken. I'm so broken. My body was broken for you. 
I'm so confused. Doubt is so strong. My body was broken for you. God, but I'm not good enough. I feel like I, I, I never measure up. If only I had listened, my body was broken for you. You are good enough. You do measure up. I love you. You are my poema. You are my poem. You are my masterpiece. Stop trying to be somebody and just be a voice. Receive my love. We also take a cup. This cup represents the blood of Jesus, which was shed for us. It's through his blood that we are made whole. They used to sing nothing but the blood of Jesus. His blood was shed for you. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.